This morning, we are going to take a pause in our study of the book of Judges for a very specific purpose. Each and every year, we take some time to reorient our mind and our hearts to the mission that God has given to us. The mission that God has given to this church is really the mission of the Christian faith, but we boil it down into a phrase, be loved and love. It's a phrase that you encounter when you walk through the doors of our church, be loved and love. We want every single person that walks through the doors of this church to be loved and loved, to be loved by God, to be loved by others, to love God, to love others. But in order for this to take place, we've got to be humbled. And so what we've come up with is a small series that we, we go through each and every year titled Repent and Be Loved. Repent and Be Loved. We're going to be looking at what repentance is, which is this morning, and four of the ways in which we are t- uh, tempted all the time to look away from God and look to other things, things like significance, acceptance, control, and comfort. And so we're going to be talking about those topics in the coming weeks. But again, this morning we're going to be looking at the idea of repentance and asking the question, what is repentance? It was Jesus who said this. From that time, Jesus began to preach in Matthew 4, 17, says this, Jesus' command, repent, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So what does it mean to repent? If we are going to be a church that lives on mission to be loved and loved, repentance is vitally important. With that being said, um, Casey, will you turn off the mute? The, the, uh, it's okay. Thank you. Thank you. Just with that. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15. If you have a Bible, you can turn to that. Luke 15. What's that? We're good? Okay. Sorry. I was like... Luke chapter 15, um, if, you, if you have a Bible, you can do that. If you um, have one of the Bibles that we have, it's page 969, um, if you use one of the Bibles that we've provided. And again, just remember, we have those Bibles so that you um, can have them. These are your Bibles. If you want them, it's yours. They're not the church's Bibles. If you want this Bible, it's your Bible. Um, we want you to have that. We have plenty in the back. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter of Luke 15, a very beloved passage of scripture, one so vital to our faith. If you will, follow along as I read God's word from Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, these religious people, grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus tells them this parable. What man of you Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. (laughs) Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field 
to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. and Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered to his father this way, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I was meeting with the elders a few weeks ago, and one of the things we were talking about are ideas or things that we're interested in. I just wanted to have a conversation with the elders about that which was intriguing me. I mentioned to them that I'd been really into the Vietnam War. I, I, I will not go a long time on the Vietnam War, but I said it's been something that I've not known a tremendous amount about but I wanted to learn more about it. So I've been reading a book on the Vietnam War and watching Ken Burns' documentary on the PBS War. And there's one thought that I want to share with you from my lessons that I've learned from the Vietnam War. And this is the one thought. Did you know that the Americans dropped more bombs on Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia than the entire World War II on Japan and on Germany? I mean, it's, 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 it's combined. So many bombs were dropped on Vietnam, yet the North Vietnamese whom the United States was in a conflict with would not prevail. And it's left people wondering, what is it about the North Vietnamese that enabled them to endure bombing after bombing and bombing, artillery strikes and all sorts of powerful equipment? What was it that enabled them to endure? And nearly every single person that understands the Vietnam says it this way, roughly speaking. It's an idea. You see, the North Vietnamese had this idea that, that they were Vietnamese, and they didn't want either the French or the American or the Japanese who had infiltrated Vietnam to dictate what Vietnamese people did. And so the idea of being able to rule themselves was the idea that enabled them to endure bombing after bombing and great military strikes after great military strikes. It was an idea that the Vietnamese could lead the Vietnamese that enabled them to endure and to overcome great power. Indeed, the idea that the Vietnamese had embraced was stronger of an idea than anything that a bomb could ever do. Ideas, here's the point, ideas have incredible power. 
more power than anything one person could, could create. As I think about this world, there's one piece or this one idea that has transformed the world than any other ideas, more so than communism, more so than, than, than truly any idea that has come across in the last 500 years. And the idea is one of repentance. In 1500s, a young man named Martin Luther became convinced that the Catholic Church was wrong in its understanding of repentance. And he penned 95 theses on the Wittenberg Chapel in Germany. And do you know what these 95 theses were all about? Repentance. The Protestant Reformation that puts you and me into these chairs right here, right now, rather than a Roman Catholic Church, was a thesis on repentance. The idea of repentance is a powerful idea stronger than any bomb, stronger than anything that we can come up with. What is repentance? I, I wish I could say to you that the church has grasped repentance following Luther. I wish we could say that. I wish we could, like, 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 like what, what Luther had, I wish we could understand it and spark something that literally lights the world on fire from coast to coast. But yet if we're true about ourselves, there are still lukewarm churches, lukewarm people everywhere. Consider your own heart. How, how often are you running to God in comfort of his mercy? How often are you um, zealously moving out into the world to bring his kingdom to come? How often are you, like Luther, willing to risk your life for these ideas? My guess is, there's a faulty understanding of repentance. If you get what Luther said, that idea of what true repentance is, well, your life will be lit. And the idea that sparked the Reformation can not only change your life, but as it has shown in history, it can change the world. So the question we're looking at is what is repentance? If we are a people that's going to repent and be loved, we have to come to an understanding of what repentance is. And this is where Luke 15 comes into, into, into play this morning. This is the most beloved passage of scripture, and for good reason. It's often thought that this is a picture of who God is, particularly of the father who runs out and greets the son who had left and come home. But yet, this, this chapter of scripture is never quite understood to be a parable about repentance. But I wanna show you this morning that this passage is without a doubt about repentance. And it's a passage that teaches us about repentance. And if we can grasp what Luke 15 shows us about what repentance is, I am telling you, your world and your life can be turned upside down. And the lukewarm heart that many of you can be plagued with will be lit. And there will be a warmth and a joy that can change the world. So we're gonna look at this story, and I'm gonna show you why this, this story is about repentance. Let's look at Luke 15. Jesus in Luke 15 tells three stories to form one parable. This is something that's often missed. Three stories to form one parable. We, we tend to focus on the last story that Jesus tells, and I understand why. But you cannot tell the third story without telling the first two stories. There are three stories to form one parable. And this one parable, this one parable is told in the context of a group of people. We find the context in the first two verses. 
what is taking place in the first two verses of this story? Jesus is drawing sinners to himself. He's eating with sinners. He's talking with them. And dare I say, he's even laughing with sinners. And who can't stand the fact that Jesus is drawing towards sinners and tax collectors? Who is it? It says the Pharisees and the scribes. They can't handle it. Now, if you don't know what Pharisees and scribes are, they're religious leaders. They would be equivalent of pastors or seminary professors today. They are really intelligent, religious people. They know the Bible from cover to cover. They know the ins and the outs. And then Jesus, in hearing their grumbling, because they're so frustrated that Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors, he looks at them and he goes, hey guys, I'm gonna tell you a story. In fact, I'm gonna tell you three stories. I'm gonna tell you this parable. And he begins telling them this parable. Remember, three stories, one parable. Recall the first story that he tells. He tells the story of a sheep who's lost. Following the sheep that is lost, a search begins, and when the sheep is found, what happens? A party breaks out. And Jesus concludes the first story this way. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who what? Repents. Than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So then he tells them the second story to form this parable. And the second story is much like the first, but in this one, it's about a coin, not a sheep. In this story, like the first, a search begins to find the lost coin. And when the coin is found, what happens just like the first? A party breaks out. And Jesus concludes this story with the following words. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So go to the third story. He's, he's created this pattern in all of his stories. And he comes down to this third story and we see once again something is lost. And what is lost in this third story? It's not a sheep. It's not a coin. It's a son. The son who is lost is the son who has offended his family when he demands his inheritance before his father is dead. You know, sons get inheritance when their father dies, and then they get the money that their father left, leaves to them. But he asked for it before his father's dead. How offensive is this? He would rather his dad be dead than alive. I mean, that's offensive to us. It's a lost son. But then he takes his money, then he takes his inheritance that his father had given him. I don't know why, but he does. And he spends his money on that which pleases him. And then he ends up in a pig pen face down in the pig pen, eating the very things that pigs eat. To Jews, this would have been so offensive. They couldn't even be with pigs. And yet this brother, this lost son, was face down in the mud with the pigs. Of course, there's something lost in this third story, but again, there's something that is found or seemingly found. The son comes home, and when the son comes home, of course, the older brother is frustrated. But look at what the father says at the very end of this story. The father comes out to the older brother and he says, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The lost son is home. And much like the first two stories, there's a party that follows. When that which is lost is found, a great celebration ensues. But there's something missing in this third story. That it was included in the first two stories. Can you... Can you Think about this. What is the glaring omission that Jesus keeps from this third story? It's the story about repentance. 
Remember, there's more joy in heaven when one sinner repents than over 99 who are righteous and need no repentance. And then, then, then the second story, he talked about the rejoicing of the repentance in heaven by the angels. But in this third story, there's, there's no celebrating. In heaven, there's no, there's no lesson about repentance. And what's the point? Jesus is looking at the religious in this setting, and he wants to teach them about repentance. He's looking at these lukewarm religious people and say, you don't understand repentance. Your heart is lukewarm because you don't understand what is vital to the Christian faith or what is vital to, church, what is vital to our faith. What we have to see in this third story, it is this third story that is spoken to these religious leaders that they don't understand repentance, but if they dug into what Jesus actually said, they would actually learn what repentance is. And if they understood what repentance is, their, their heart would be lit on fire. I'm gonna study this third story with you that your heart would be set on fire by this idea of repentance. Ideas have power. They have power. And the idea that I want you to embrace that has incredible power in your life today is the one of repentance. So we're gonna study repentance. We're gonna look what it is not. We're gonna look at what it is. And then we're gonna look at what compels us to repent. So what is repentance? Well, let's first look at what it is not. It's important to see what it is not because truly what we will see is that it's kind of hard to grasp. It, it, it can be really tricky in this third story that Jesus used, there's this perfect depiction of what we typically think of repentance, what we can be duped to believe. It's a repentance that looks real. It's a repentance that feels real. But at the end of the day, it's a repentance that's just simply counterfeit. So in the first two stories, the word Jesus used for this repentance, when he's talking about the celebrating of people returning, it's the, it's the word metanoia that's used all throughout this story. And metanoia, which is the Greek word for repentance, is a word that means a change of mind which results in a change of lifestyle. A change of mind which results in a change of lifestyle. So look at this third story. We, we don't see this word used in the story, but we do see this kind of taking place. When the younger son who has left his family and has spent money on whatever he wanted to do, when his life hits rock bottom, he's in the pig pen, face down in the mud, he begins to have a repentant moment. A change of mind, which results in a change of lifestyle. And look at what he says in the verse 17. He comes up with, he reasons within himself. Look at what he says. We can think that this is repentance. He says to himself, how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, and he says three things in his mind about what he's gonna say to his father. He's, he's, he's changing his mind, right? He's gonna go home. And these are the three things that he says. Father, I have sinned against you. And against heaven, I have sinned against you. So there's an acknowledgement here of, of his wrongdoing. So that's the first thing that he does. The second thing is, is that he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Here the son realizes that what he has done has been so offensive that it actually makes him not worthy to be a son. There's consequences of his actions. I think we all understand that there's consequences of our sin. So here we go. So repentance is acknowledging our sin, acknowledging that, that our sin has consequences. And then the third thing that he says, treat me as one of your hired servants. This is the third thing that he says. Right here we see how this young man understood what repentance was. Acknowledgement of sin, Acknowledging the consequence of sin, 
but a willingness to pay off the debt for the rest of his life. If you've ever been around repentance, this sort of thinking seems right. It certainly fits with the description or general understanding of metanoia. But here's the thing. This is not metanoia. This is not repentance. Have you ever been in a um, grocery store and you have this crisp, clean $20 bill or maybe a $100 bill, whatever it is, and you take this crisp, clean $100 bill and you give it to the cash cashier and they look at that and they go, oh, and this looks real, it feels real, smells real, looks like $100, but what do they do? They go into their cash register and they pull out their little pen and they slice, you know, whatever they do. I don't even know what it is. And that's what exposes the bill as counterfeit. It looks real, it feels real, it seems real, but unless a pen is put onto it, you never know if it's, it's real or not. What Jesus is doing is he's taking a pen to what we think is repentance and he's exposing it for counterfeit. This is what he does in this story. And, and, and consider how Jesus takes his pen and reveals it on this, this letter. Go to verse 20. The younger son rises just as he said he would go. And he goes to his father. And, he, and he, when he comes to his father, who had run out to him, he finally speaks. And look at what he says. He's prepared to say three things, right? This is what he says. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So he's acknowledging his sin before him. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he says that my sin has consequences. But then he never gets to the third statement. And what I love in these words, if you have a Bible and you like to write in your Bible and things like that, what I would say to you is circle these two words, or three words, but the father. But the father. It's as if the father is entering in right into this moment and he interrupts the son right before he could say this third thing that he had prepared to say, which is treat me as one of your hired servants or slaves. You know, the father doesn't even let him get to that. It's another glaring omission that reveals something so valuable in this that that idea that this boy had as he's in the, in the mud is not true Repentance. This idea that I'm going to slave for you and pay off the debt that I have before you for the rest of my life. This is not repentance. We must see this. And we all can understand why a younger son would reason this way. He had blown the inheritance of his father on himself. And he understood that the only way that he could ever be in good favor with his father was if he paid it back. Maybe even his brother. And he would use his blood, his sweat, his tears to do that just so that he could have a measly meal each and every day. This is an attitude that is incredibly commendable by many, but it's the same attitude that led to the boy leaving his family in the first place. Such an attitude is one that is self-centered. It's not self-centered with irreligious bents, not spending it on prostitutes and on alcohol or whatever he wants to do it. It, it, it's an attitude that's self-centered, reliant on religious overtones. I'm gonna serve, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna pay back, I'm gonna do all that I can to pay you back. If, if you will, if I were to put this man's understanding of repentance in a simple statement, it would be this. And it's a statement that we can 
definitely understand with regards to repentance that is not true. This man understood repentance to be this. It's turning from his godlessness to godliness. Godlessness, okay, we get that. I've sinned before God and there's consequences to godliness. Now I gotta be better. Now I gotta serve God and do all the things that I gotta do to be in his good favor. But this glaring omission that Jesus provides us in verse 20 is indeed a marker on the counterfeit repentance of this text. Turning from our godlessness to godliness is not true repentance. Get that into your mind. It's something else. We can easily believe that when we are caught in sin or when we've done things, and each and every one of us are are, are guilty of being sinners before God, but when we get caught, sometimes in those big sins, those big sins of our life where the sweat starts pooling on our forehead and starts dripping down your back, where you go, oh, I've been exposed. And now there's gonna be consequences. Every single one of us in that moment says, I wanna be better, I gotta do better, I gotta clean my life up, I gotta do this. But repentance is something different. What is repentance? Thankfully, Jesus' story provides us clarity as to what repentance is. We have looked at what repentance is not. Repentance is not turning from our godlessness to our godliness. It's something different, albeit it looks very close to this. What is repentance? Recall what happened with the younger son after he reasoned with himself into the pig pen. He goes to the father. He confesses that he has sinned against heaven and against his father. He acknowledges he's no longer worthy to be called his son. And then those words, but the father. But the father come, in, come into that. I don't know what took place in that moment. I don't know what, what this son felt like in that moment, but when the father says, bring the best robe and the ring and the shoes and he, get, my, get the fattened calf and kill it, we're having a party, I, I envision that the father ran out to him and threw his arms around his son. And in that embrace with the father and the son, I think we have here the true repentance that Jesus wants us to embody what metanoia truly is. It is going to God and confessing our sins before him. It is acknowledging that, that our sin has consequences and that those consequences are horrible. But finally, it is being graciously embraced by God. That's repentance. Acknowledging your sin, confessing it, seeing how it's horrible, but then allowing God to embrace you in his mercy and his grace. I'm gonna say this real short phrase because I think it's really important for us to understand. Repentance is not going from our godlessness to godliness. Repentance is going from our godlessness to God. It's a huge distinction. Can you see how it's like counterfeit money? It looks real, it feels real, but it's just off just a little bit. It's our godlessness to God. And guys, this is, this is simple, it, it, it's, but it's so profound, it's so unique. It's why the, the, the church who pre preaches and, and teaches repentance all the time can get it off because it's really close. It's really close. But the only thing that's gonna light your heart on fire is the true understanding of what repentance is. That it's going from our godlessness to God who is full of mercy and grace. That's it. Now, you know who this is really hard for? 
It's really hard for the church, for religious people, for people who are, who are proud of all the things that they've done for God. It's really hard because they have to acknowledge the fact that the good things that they've done are actually, as Isaiah said, filthy rags. And that's hard. It's hard for church people to recognize that even in their religiosity, that they could be sinners. People who have done what is right and think that they have unique privileges for doing what is right. And I think Jesus understood this, which is why at the very end of his story, he tells the little story about the older brother, the one who's always done what was right. Consider this story. It's fascinating to think about. When the older brother hears that this celebration was commemorating the return of his brother, he was angry and refused to partake in the celebration. He says to his father after he says, he uses the same language that the younger brother had reasoned when he was in the pig pen. Look at this. All these years I have served you. I have slaved for you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. I mean, isn't this interesting? The younger brother and the older brother have the same mentality that they have to slave themselves for their father. Their understanding of repentance is one from godlessness to godliness. This is their understanding. And they miss the mark. And oh, that we would have ears to hear that repentance is not turning from our godlessness to godliness. Repentance is turning from our godlessness to God who is rich in mercy and grace. This is what repentance is. It's finding yourself when you get caught and the, the sweat pools on your forehead and starts dripping down your spine because what is real about you is felt in powerful ways. But you don't say to yourself, okay, I'm gonna clean my life up. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get after this. And I, 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 okay, that's, that's fine. But I want you to go to God. He's rich in mercy and grace but I wonder if you believe that. I wonder if you believe that God truly is rich in mercy and abounding in grace. You know, our grasp that God indeed is merciful and gracious is the only reason that will compel us to relinquish our independence and to throw ourselves at the feet of God saying, the only thing that enables me to be in your presence is your mercy and your grace. What I'm gonna do right now is gonna compel you to go to the feet of our Father who is merciful and gracious. And it is often true that we don't believe that God is merciful and gracious. But it is important for us to repent this day. Jesus said it in Matthew 4. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Indeed, when we see that God is indeed merciful and gracious, all we can do is throw ourselves at his feet. But I want to show you how God indeed is merciful. I want to show you that, that you might be compelled to repent. What compels true repentance? The mercy and grace of God. And in this story, Jesus provides us a beautiful picture of his mercy and grace. It's just kind of hard to see. In this story, characters in in the story can easily be identified in the setting Jesus tells this parable. 
The younger brother in the story, this third story, are the sinners and tax collectors who have done all the bad things. The older brother is the religious leaders who criticize Jesus for eating and laughing and dining with these sinners. The father in the parable is this picture of God the father. But the question that we have to ask, and it is astounding, is this. Who's Jesus? We can identify all these other people, but where's Jesus? Where's Jesus in this third story? We have one final glaring omission in this story. Who's Jesus? I want you to remember the first two stories. What was the pattern of the first two stories that Jesus tells? Something was lost, and when something was lost, what took place right after that? A search. Recall the third story. Was there a search in the third story? There wasn't. Jesus established a pattern, and then he, he intentionally left out that pattern in his third story. What's going on with this? Well, Jesus intentionally omitted this because he wanted to give his audience a clue where he could be found in the story. Now, culturally, culturally speaking, if something like Jesus' story and the third story that he tells ever unfolded, it would always be expected that the oldest male in the family would be responsible for going out and seeking to save that which is lost. The older brother was the one who was supposed to go and find the sibling and bring them home. But of course, in the third story that Jesus tells, the older brother doesn't go out and seek. He sits by, grumbling that his father had thrown a party for his brother. The older brother doesn't seek. This is a detail the first century Jews would have picked up, and it would have offended them. It's lost on us because we don't understand this. But this is what Jesus is doing in real life. When you take the fact that Jesus is sitting with sinners and tax collectors, he's eating with them, he's laughing with them, he's drawing near to them, what is Jesus communicating to these religious people? I'm the one seeking that which is lost. I'm the true older brother who's seeking the younger brother who has given up all things. I'm that one. I'm the older brother. And I'm here to show that there is full, God is full of mercy and grace. But here's the thing. Let's press this older brother concept of Jesus even more so because this, this is so beautiful that we have to see this. Consider the older brother in this story. When his younger brother comes home, he, he, he had to be offended because the, 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 his brother gets his ring, his robe, his calf. Because the brother had already given up his inheritance. So when the father says, here, take my robe, take my calf, here's all this stuff, what's the older brother going? Ah, uh-uh, homeboy. That's mine. And so when the father gives to the younger son what was promised to the older brother, he's understandably frustrated. But is Jesus at all frustrated? Absolutely not. He willingly lays down his life, sacrificing even his body to bring younger brothers to himself. Said differently, Jesus, your older brother, willingly lays down his life to pay the debt that you require, it's required of you so that a party could be thrown in your honor. Jesus is saying to the people that are sitting there listening to the story, 
I'm the older brother who lays down his life that a party might be thrown in your honor before God. What is it that compels us to repentance, to turn from our godlessness to God? It is seeing that God is full of mercy and grace. And here's Jesus saying, I am paying for your sin and for your debt. Church, your older brother has paid the debt. And there is a party waiting for you in heaven if you repent. The, paid, the payment for that party has already been paid by Jesus. So repent. Turn from your godlessness and go to God. He is full of mercy and he is full of grace. Let us do that. This idea can literally light your heart on fire and turn the world upside down. It already has. May we be about repentance. Let me pray. Lord, we give thanks for this beautiful, beautiful story and parable that you've given to us. It is a picture of your mercy and your grace, but it is also a picture to us of how we are called to live, to live a life of repentance, of humbling ourselves and saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. This is all our hope, that Jesus, our older brother, has indeed paid for the party that comes, that comes when one sinner repents. Lord, we praise you and give glory to you. May we be a people who continually turn from our godlessness and turn to you, endeavoring to live as becomes your sons and daughter. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.